0: Uh, almost two years. Uh, we talked about that a little bit last week. Um, uh, Eric Wittenberg leads a team of volunteers who make meals. They used to do devotions and and sit and talk with folks. Um, well, the 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 situation is winter gets colder. Obviously, um, with uh, homeless folks, people who are down on their luck, um, we're looking for how do we how can we minister in a tangible way in a time period where you really can't just like go around doing stuff for people. We, we have to kind of keep social distance and all that. Um, and so Eric reached out to the director uh, of the rescue mission um, and asked, um, I asked him to ask them um, if there was any specific need that we could help out with. And so they shared a couple of needs, and one of the things that really caught my attention uh, was that they, they just had to move a bunch of money around to buy new mattresses, and it cost uh, about $1,000 to do that. Um, and, um, and so I talked with the elders. Uh, I talked with uh, some folks and I and wanted to bring this to you. Um, and it is, uh, God has blessed us so much. So if you haven't kept track of the financial situation, through this whole, through 2020 in the fiscal year, which starts in May, um, we're, we're about, uh, our, your, giving, um, your, your your giving, your stewardship, your giving is about um, a month and a half ahead of our budget. Um, you guys have been, just been so generous, and so we, we have a little bit, not a, not a you know, crazy surplus, we're all going to buy out Rolexes and stuff, but, um, but good stewardship is not just about being careful with your money, it's also about caring for others, and so what we'd like to do, and what we're, we're presenting to you, um, is to uh, make a donation to Southern New Hampshire Rescue Mission to cover the cost of those mattresses. That's that's what we'd like to do, um, and um, and so I I, I don't want to I'm not going to call for a vote or anything like that. But this week we're going to send out a form um, on the email, uh, just a simple thing, yes or no. Um, on, on that question. Um, Eric Wittenberg would be happy to answer any questions. I know he loves it when I throw him under the, under the rails like this. Um, but Eric Wittenberg would be happy to answer any questions from a social distance about uh, Southern New Hampshire rescue mission and what they do. And if you're interested in participating in that, we're always, uh, we've always we're always rotating people in so that um, so people don't get burnt out. Um, and so but we'd like to do that. Um, I'd like you to consider it. I'd like you to pray about it. Um, we 'll send out like i said we 'll send out an online form in a couple of days um, and just give us a yes or no on that one um, on being generous to them. Uh, this would be above and beyond our budget, but this is not a special offering i 'm not asking you to give money to this we we have the money to do this, um, and so we want to uh, we want to take that opportunity uh, if we can um, other than that, uh, usually our Christmas season is super busy. We usually have a Christmas choir thing going on, or musical stuff, and we have Advent candles, and we have uh, Christmas uh, Christmas parties, and all those things. And we're not doing any of those this year. Um, so before I get into the message, uh, I want to I want to share with you just just. A, just an idea um, that has nothing to do with giving to the church or being part of a church program, and some of you are probably already doing this. Um, but this is this is a season where uh, normally uh, we have lots and lots of opportunities to share uh, Christ's love to the to the world. We, we're able to do all kinds of things this year. Um, more than anything, um, I think that people, especially. This winter, as we come into this winter and we're still going through this whole debacle that was 2020, um, I would encourage you to set a goal this year to be an encouragement to a number of people in the course of your day. It can be something as simple as a smile, it can be writing a Christmas card, it can just be be something big and elaborate, I don't know, taking everybody's kids to Disney World or something, I don't know, Um, but if anybody does that, uh, you know, just... Let me know. I, I don't like crowds. so. Um, but uh, not that I'm anybody's kid. I mean, I, I am. But, uh, but uh, I want to encourage you. I want to challenge you as we get into this season. And, and real briefly every week, I'm just going to talk a little bit about um, this being a season, season of encouragement, uh, a season of God with us. And, and for most of the world, um, God with us means the people of God sharing something uh, from God to them. And so I want to encourage you to just think about that in this season. Um, other than that, uh, anything, any announcements and stuff are in the bulletin. Um, and I uh, encourage you to check that out. Uh, and if you have any questions, let us know. If you're not getting our emails, please send us an email at info at if you'd like to. Um, we're, the, the system sometimes seems to be dropping people. And so sometimes you just stop receiving emails. Um, and so we want to make sure that that's corrected. Um, and for once... I can honestly say. Normally, I say, you know, oh, the secretary made a typo or whatever, and it's it's me. Uh, I, I have nothing to do with whatever Mailchimp is doing to our email list. Um, so if you're not getting you're get, not getting our emails, nobody, no physical person does. It seems to be the system. I don't know if you've ever noticed this, but sometimes uh, computer companies just make decisions without asking you right, that, that never happens, right, um, uh, for example, Facebook, ye beloved social media site, um, one day decided, nah, we don't want your Sunday videos to start automatically, we want you to push a button, didn't tell us, didn't change the website, just decided on their own. So for a couple of weeks, we've been sitting there going, why isn't Facebook streaming? What's going on? Why is Facebook so late? Well, they just decided we needed to push a button because, you know, computers need people pushing buttons. Anyway, um, with all that said, let's go ahead and get into the scriptures this morning. Um, we're going to finish up uh, a series uh, from Ezra and Nehemiah this morning. So let's have a word of prayer. And we're going to get into ne- Nehemiah chapter 6. Even though the bulletin says 7, it's Nehemiah 6. I'm going to blame the secretary, um, which is me. And, uh, and we'll go ahead and have a word of prayer and get into the, the scriptures. Father, thank you for bringing us together. Um, some days Some days are harder than others. Some days are easier than the rest. Lord, wherever we are on that spectrum, help us to hear from you. Help us to listen to your Spirit's word, to, um, to identify in some way, shape, or form uh, with uh, Nehemiah and the struggles that he faced, and also to see you and your provision uh, in his life and in ours. And as we enter this season of, uh, of giving and encouragement, Lord, help us, first of all, help us to allow your spirit to encourage us, and then to be an encouragement to others. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen. So let's take a look at Nehemiah chapter 6. Now, this is the last week we're going to be in Ezra and Nehemiah, and uh, of course, there are several chapters left uh, of the book uh, of Nehemiah, but... Um, a lot of that is uh, the names of people, and everybody loves when people preach through genealogies, so uh, I figured you guys would be okay if I skipped that, um, and um, I want to I just share just at the tail end of what was going on with Nehemiah in Nehemiah chapter 6, and if you, you need to kind of catch up to where we are, um, the the people of, of Judah Uh, were taken into exile around the year 600 uh, B.C., 586 B.C. was kind of the end of it. Um, They stayed in exile for 70 years in Babylon. Then the Persian Empire took over, and the Persian king Cyrus, or Karush, he sent... Uh, the Jews back um, and and they were able to rebuild their temple. That was the first thing that they were able to do. They got kind of stopped by some of the locals didn't like it. They wrote a letter to the king. He stopped them from building. It took 16 years for them to find the original letter that said it was okay for them to build it. So then they were able to finish their temple and then um, they were able to kind of do their worship, have their sacrifices, uh, observe their feasts. Uh, but Jerusalem was just a small town, uh, probably no more than 1,500 people uh, living in what today is a city of over a million people um, and, and handles a pilgrimage uh, uh, population of equal to that. Jerusalem can swell to 2 million people during Easter. Um, but only about 1,500 people live in just around this small temple um, and really on the outskirts of the Persian Empire. And then uh, we get to this guy, Nehemiah, and Nehemiah uh, is sent by the king to be the governor and to build the walls and to convert Jerusalem, this little city, little town with a, with a temple in the middle of it, into a citadel, into a, a fortress. And he's going to be the governor of that region, um, and his job is going to be to kind of protect the flank of the Persian Empire. Well, he starts to build the wall, and immediately they reach opposition. They face opposition. We're going to talk about some of that opposition today. Um, People who uh, wanted to manipulate or control Nehemiah in the process of what was going on. And to accomplish that, they do the one thing that everybody can rely on for power over other people, and that is to evoke or attempt to evoke fear. Fear is a powerful motivator. Uh, fear is the reason uh, that the nightlight was invented. Um, and now, now some of you are thinking, no, the nightlight was invented so I could find my way to the bathroom in the middle of the night. If you look back on your childhood, you will recall at some point you had a feeling that darkness was, was scary and mom or dad put a nightlight. It maybe it was Rainbow Bright, maybe it was uh, My Little Pony, maybe it was a Transformer nightlight. Uh, mine was Batman, um, because if you can in life, you should always have things that are branded by Batman. Um, and uh, and you know y- you get your nightlight and it just kind of gives you a little comfort. You're not in the complete dark. Um, if you've ever been outside on a really dark night. You know that in really dark nights, every possible fear that your brain can pro- can come up with evoke if you're out in the woods in the middle of the night uh, this spring we were walking our dogs um, uh, in uh, late at night, and of course our dogs are fierce and ferocious descendants of wolves um, and uh, if you don't if you don't know our our dogs are about this tall and have all of the ferocity of an ice cream cone and um And I was out walking my dogs. My wife was with me, and we were walking. And we, you know, we live in Merrimack, you know, so 80% of it is woods, and the rest of it is parking lots. And um, we were we were walking we were walking, and she heard this noise, and she was like, "Oh my goodness, what is this?" It was like this this really loud grunting noise. Now I grew up in deer country, so I know what it was. Um, It was deer or, or moose in the back there, and it was springtime and biology, and they were looking for mates. That's what they were doing. Um, now, that's not a place you want to be walking your little dog when things with antlers are looking for for uh, marriage partners. Um, and so... Uh, so we were like, okay. And my wife was like, I'm not gonna walk. I, I, I'm okay. I'm gonna go home. And I kind of took the little dogs and walked along. But e- even for me, I, I, and the dark isn't a big deal for me. Um, but even for me, one time I was walking the dog, um, you know, because it's it's winter now and it gets dark at like 1:30. And I was walking, I was walking the dog, and I I have a, a like a headlamp, like a, a flashlight that fits on my head, um, that. It's well-named. And I I was walking along and I put my head up and when I did, I saw the flash of an eye. Have you ever been in the dark and seen an eye... That could be the, the nicest kitty cat in the world, and it's still terrifying. You're like, oh my gosh, an eye, you know, because it's an animal eye. It's not like a people eye. It's one of those, they've got like, I don't know, they've got like reflector strips behind their eyes or something, and, and you see them in every single animal. I mean, it could be a squirrel, man, and it looks like 83 feet tall. It's Godzilla. He's going to eat me. Now, it turned out to be our neighbor, uh, walking her, uh, her, her black lab, Savannah, who is the sweetest Dog in the universe, but for that moment, Savannah was a dire wolf. I was I was going to be consumed. Um you know, fear is a powerful motivator. It, it transforms uh, some, of the, some of the strongest people into the, into the, the mushiest things. Um, I got one more fear story I got to tell you just because this was, this was still, it's still a highlight of my life, which doesn't say much about my life. Um, but we were out camping with uh, our friends Joel and Jen very early in our marriage. We were at a campground. And, and, um, and we were walking, and Joel and I, you know, early 20s, you know, macho, macho man, right? And so nothing stirs us, and we're hikers, and we're awesome, and aren't we cool? And we're walking down the street, and my wife, my wife will tell you, this is not an exaggeration, the story I'm about to tell. Uh, we were walking uh, down this dirt road on this campground, and a spider dropped down from a tree right in front of Joel, and he squealed like a little girl and did the Neo thing from the Matrix. He like, like leaned it was and it was so funny. His wife was laughing. He's like, he's like, you know, hovering over in the other end because a spider jumped in his face. And of course, I, being a good friend, laughed so hard because it was the funniest thing I'd ever seen. Um, yes. Yeah, Joel Joel screamed a lot, actually. Um, But uh, this, you know, fear takes somebody that you think is great and they, they become something else. It motivates us to do crazy things, doesn't it? So if you want to get somebody to stop doing something, right, if you can get fear to override passion for that thing, they will change their path. And so as Nehemiah is building, attempt, building this wall, a set of people come along to prey on his fears. And this is in Nehemiah chapter 6, um, chapter 6 and verse 1. Now when Sanballat, um, and Sanballat is actually, we know for a fact uh, who he was, where he lived. Um, he appears in a, in a letter that was written uh, in Egypt to a Persian governor. Um Sanballat, Tobiah, Geshem, the Arab, and the rest of our enemies heard that I had built the wall and that there was no breach left in it, although up to that time I had not set up the doors and the gates. And Sanballat and Geshem sent to me, saying, Come, let us meet together at hak in the plain of Ono. Anytime you... Somebody, oh, the plain of Ono. Oh, yes. Uh, oh Ono. Um, but they intended to do me harm. And I sent messengers saying to them, I am doing a great work. I cannot come down. Why should the work stop while I leave it and come down to you? Um, so now this is, this is going to sound a little weird, but this is the first step that they take to try to get Nehemiah um, to be afraid. And I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to summarize all of this, but this is the first step. They said, can you, can you just come down and talk to us? We we'll just have something to talk about. And, of course, we we all can identify with that kind of fear. Every time a parent says to their kid, I want to talk to you when I get home, you sit there and run an inventory of all the things you did, and then you try to remember which ones you got caught doing to figure out which ones you just got caught doing. Right? He says, no, I'm not coming down. And they sent to me four times in this way, and I answered them in the same manner. And in the same way, Sam Ballat, for the fifth time, sent his servant to me with an open letter in his hand. Now, this is um, an idea of an open letter as a letter that the, the, the servant could read. So um, Persian letters, and I know this is history nerdy stuff, um, but Persian letters, what they would do is they would write two copies of a letter on parchment and... Um, And the the copy inside would have all the details and stuff, but the copy, then they'd wrap it in a copy that had just a summary on the outside that anybody could read. And when you sent a servant with that letter, the idea was he was going to read it out loud when he showed up. All right, so he was going to read this summary. So, you know, it's like, hear ye, hear ye. You know, this this was intended to be an open letter. It wasn't a sealed letter. Now, this, by the way, was against the rules in the Persian Empire. You could not send an open letter to another governor. The idea of the governors, the people were not supposed to know what was going on inside the administration of the empire. So you weren't supposed to leave open letters. You weren't supposed to have this going on. So this guy is is messing with the system. Um, And it was written, it is reported among the nations, this is verse 6, and Geshem also said it, that you and the Jews intend to rebel. That's why you're building a wall. And according to these reports, you wish to become their king. And you have also set up prophets to proclaim concerning you in Jerusalem. There is a king in Judah, and now the king will hear of these reports. And so now come and let us take counsel together. And I said to him, saying, no such things as you say have have been done. You are inventing them out of your own mind. For they all wanted to frighten us, thinking their hand will drop from the work, and it will not be done. But now, O God, strengthen my hands. Now I went to into the house of Shemaiah, the son of Deliah, the son of Mahatabel, who was confined to his home, because he's old, not because he had COVID. And he said, let us meet together in the house of God, within the temple. Let us close the doors of the temple, for they are coming to kill you. Now, doesn't this sound like good advice? They are coming to kill you by night. But I said, should such a man as I run away, what man such as I would go into the temple and live? I will not go in. And I understood and saw that God had not sent him, but he had pronounced the prophecy against me because Tobiah and Sanballat had hired him. For this purpose he was hired that I should be afraid and act in this way and sin. And so they could give me a bad name in order to taunt me. Remember Tobiah and Sanballat, oh my God, according to these things that they did. And also the prophetess Noadiah and the rest of the prophets who wanted to make me afraid. Nehemiah is confronted with fear. I think he's confronted the, the Tobiah and Sanballat. They use fear three ways to try to manipulate Nehemiah. And these could be stages, these could be, this isn't by any means an exhaustive survey of how fear works, but rather just what this passage has to say about this particular situation. And maybe you can identify with some of this. The first way that they try to use fear um, is just hinting around at it to try to get you to talk instead of work. They're just they when they first say to Nehemiah, "Hey, could you come down to this really hard to pronounce place in the plain of Ono? Um, we just want to talk to you." The obvious idea behind that is oh, there's something going on. We want to tell you about it, but shh, it's a secret. It's really important. Why don't you why don't you just stop doing what you're doing and come? And we're going to tell you this thing. We 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 just want you to to get away from the work and <clears throat> hinting around at fear. Doesn't that uh, rather than being open about it, rather than saying something, doesn't that sometimes make it worse? Like rather than just facing it right up front and just kind of saying, "Well, you know, I mean, I, maybe there's something going on that you might want to think about." No, I'm not going to tell you. I don't want to tell you too much. It's like when somebody says, "Somebody says, well, there's something important going on in your life, but I don't want to tell you about it." And you sit there and you go home, and you're like, "What is he talking about? What's going on? Where did I do? You know?" It, and it and it feeds those fears. They said, Let, "Let's come in, let's just talk about this, Nehemiah. Let's let's have a conversation. Come on down. Let's talk." And and planting a seed for fear in and because fear can become at this level a distraction, a delay, and just keep you from doing anything. Um, and you say, "Well, how do I how do I deal with fear becoming a distraction? How do I deal with?" Um, delay because of fear? How do, how do I deal with that? Well, I think with Nehemiah it's pretty straightforward. You can read the, the first parts of this. But Nehemiah wasn't building the wall on a whim. He had been very careful. He had been very cautious. He had taken the necessary steps to make sure he had everything in line to do the job that he knew he needed to do. He had talked to the king. He had gotten letters of permission. He had uh, resources being brought in from the forestry. He had everything was set in line. He was the rightfully appointed governor. There was no question. And so when somebody tried to distract him, somebody tried to delay him, somebody tried to hint around that there might be something to be afraid of that might require him to stop doing what he was doing, Nehemiah doesn't give it a second thought because he knew he had had done everything that needed to be done. He was at work doing what God had called him to do, so there was no reason. There's no reason to give it. He was confident in his calling and his role and his place, and so he just continued in what he had been appointed to do. See, when when we... find ourselves in a situation where fear can disrupt and distract us we have to be able to fall back on the idea this is what god has called me to do this is what god's equipped me to do and the task in front of me is is god's to be done and so i'm going to just go ahead and do it i'm not going to let fear debilitate me in accomplishing the task that was put in front of me I love podcasts. I have this thing about I, I just I listen to stuff all the time. I have to like I know this would come as a surprise to those of you that know me, but I always have to have new information flowing into my brain because I keep forgetting stuff. So I got to put things in its place. So I love podcasts and audiobooks and things like that. But I cannot stand when a great podcast becomes about something else. Than the thing that it was supposed to be out. And then one particular podcast I'll listen to is about a TV show that I really like. And in the last like three months, the hosts have spent the first 15 minutes talking about their political views. About stuff. I don't listen to the podcast to know your politics. The politics of actors mean nothing to me. They're people who are paid to live life for a living. I want you to talk about the show I like. Well, anyway, so I like to listen to stuff all the time. I'm really always, I'm like always trying to find something to listen to. I'm always trying to absorb stuff. I'm, and, and this one particular podcast, they brought a psychiatrist on and, and she was talking about how parents are going to help their kids through COVID. Um, now it was funny because the advice she was giving was exactly the opposite of what they were giving when they first shut everything down and your kids were all at home and everything. You know, it was like, it was like, oh, your kids will be fine. Nobody, there won't be any problems. Just be there to support them. Now they're like, oh, parents, you got to be super actively involved because your kids are going to drive you crazy and they're going nuts. And I'm like, well, yeah. So I don't think there's any plant parent in the United States when this COVID thing was a breeze. I was just like, I couldn't wait to have my kids with me 24 seven. It's not like they were prepared to spend eight hours, eight hours a day, five days a week at school. And now suddenly they're in my living room, um, But, you know, she was talking about, well, you know, as parents, you know, one of the most important things you need to do is, is, is focus on, on encouraging your children. You have to, she actually uttered these words, you have to be the mature one in the relationship. Isn't that a given? You're the one who had the kids. Now, the reality is that's not nearly as easy as you might, it's not nearly as ubiquitous as you might think it is, mature parents. And I'm not talking about not being goofy and all that stuff. But they're like, they're like you're going to have to support your children. She, they actually said, she actually said these words. You need to talk with your kids from time to time. I'm like, What? And the, but, the, but the reality is so often people get into this, this thing, this parenting thing, and this is a side tangent, without thinking about what their job is as a parent. Your job as a parent, it is to be the mature one. It is to know stuff your kids don't know. For Christmas, for my birthday, my wife and daughter bought me a T-shirt. It says, I play guitar and I know things. It's what I do. Um, you're, you're, supposed to, you're supposed to be the parent, but when you don't parent as a parent, guess what? Fear becomes a strong motivator. It drives decisions, it, it alters our thinking. And we get afraid about something and we, and we make bad decisions because we're buried in fear. Now, that's just an example, but that's what I'm talking about here. Nehemiah knew what he needed to do, he found the biblical foundation for it, set, planned, did what needed to be done, and the fear didn't bother him. The distractions didn't come out. And then the second thing. Second way that they then decide to motivate him with fear, they say, hey, have you heard what people are saying about you? Preying on the fear of how I appear to others. The fear of being an outsider, of being ostracized, of being uh, um, uh, people looking at us and talking about us. Now, in this particular case, they're saying, hey, do you know what people are saying? You know the most, dangerous, uh, the most dangerous pronoun in the world is they. Do you know what they're saying about you? Who is them they? I want names. I want social security numbers. I want addresses. I'm going to talk to them. Oh, well, you know, they, they, they just wanted you to know if you're a they without a name... You should have no power over people. And and so what they're saying is, is, like, hey, listen, we heard. We're not saying that we said it. We just heard that there are people saying that you're trying to set yourself up as a king. We heard this, and other people heard it too. You know, Brittany and Roxy and all the girls down at the juice bar, they were talking. This is this is what's going on they're saying they're saying this is this is what's happening people are talking about you you don't want people to talk about you like this do you you don't isn't that dangerous you know what nehemiah says you gotta love what nehemiah says he says you just imagine in this if you heard it it's not real and i will put my reputation nehemiah this is implied but it's true I put my reputation up against the reputation of anyone who would accuse me of this. Now, what are they thinking? Nehemiah was the king's cupbearer. The king trusted him with his life. You're going to bring a challenge like this against a guy who, who was able to be in the presence of the queen, if you were here last week? He's trusted explicitly by the king to do this job. So Nehemiah knows that these are just false claims. And what they're trying to do is they're trying to get Nehemiah to be so afraid of what people are saying that he changes the way he's doing stuff and conforms to their way of thinking. Well, what are people saying about you? Because what happens when you start to make decisions based on what, people, what they are saying The energy that you should be devoting to the work becomes devoted to your ego. And that's just true. You devote so much energy to making sure people feel the right way about you. You want to make sure that people perceive you the right way. I'm I'm not a threat. I'm not trying to build a kingdom. I'm I'm not trying to interfere. Let me tell you all the ways that I'm not trying to interfere. I have been told... And I don't believe it, but I have been told that um, in text, I communicate abruptly. Uh, that that when I send an email or a Facebook thing, I tend to have very assertive language. Um, somebody once told me that about myself. I, I don't, you know, I don't see it, but, you know, I don't send myself my emails, so... And, and it occurred to me that one of the problems that happens in in uh, that that mode of communication, to be perfectly honest, is um, it's completely flat of emotion. It's completely flat of inflection, um, and uh, and basically, it, it does you know seem kind of curt if you don't say things. I, I'm infamous for not. Doing things like writing people's names at the beginning of letters. Uh, if you've ever had a phone conversation with me, I hate niceties, right? Like text messaging was a great thing for me because I could just say what I needed to say, whether people responded or not. You know how a phone conversation is. Hey, how are you? What are you doing? Oh, I, you know. Oh, the sky today was great. It's like I don't have time for that. I, I just. I, and and those of you that have ever called me, you know how it is. Phone call. Hey. Eric, it's so and so. Yeah, what do you need? Do this. Okay, bye. That, that's that's how my phone conversations are. They, I I tend to be very curt, very direct. I very I, I and it borders on on rude, I guess. And it's not on purpose. I mean, those of you that know me, you know that, you know, I'm not intentionally like that, but it's just, it's one of those things. And so I had somebody tell me one time, and this was back in the corporate world before I was a pastor, they told me, every conversation you have with people has to be a sandwich. I'm like, okay, I'm listening. You got me at sandwich. (laughs) <laughs> they said, "Listen, listen, listen! All the hard things you have to say to people—you get—that's that's the inside, you know—that's that's the meat and the, and the cheese—and now, now, of course, I'm completely distracted thinking about when I can get down to the to the uh, to the food court because now I want a sandwich. And they're like, you know, that's all that stuff. It's like, but but you know, you need you need like something soft on the outside. You need to kind of you need to give something somebody so, you need to give everybody something nice and then hit them and then give them something nice." I was like, okay. So I tried it. It was the biggest mistake of my professional career. I am terrible at faking nice. (laughs) I had an employee. She came into my cubicle. I was talking to her. I had to give her a performance review. She was awful. She was a terrible employee. She should have been fired, but she couldn't be fired um, for some reason. I don't know what it was. She came into my cubicle. I had to give her a performance review. I had to sit there and try to think of nice things that I could say to her to start and to close the conversation, in the middle of which I told her that she was a terrible employee. This was going to go really well. I smiled. Hey, how are you? Good to see you. She looked at me. I kid you not. She goes, Am I getting fired? No, no, no. I just wanted to see how you were doing. I I want to let you know. I listened to one of your calls the other day. You were very pleasant. You were very courteous. You were wrong. But you were very pleasant. You were very nice. She's like, like, can you stop? Because this is creeping me out. And I just decided this is the way it's going to be. Talk too much about myself. All right, back to the text. People are talking about you. And so this false perception, the idea is if I can get you to, to live your life to please other people, that's going to keep you doing what God had, you to, had appointed you to do. And then in chapter ten or ch- verse 10, they do the most insidious thing. We find out that they have bought off one of Nehemiah's prophets actually several of them to convince him to go and hide in the temple for some reason and Nehemiah knows if he goes in the temple he's not coming out alive he knows that there's something afoot and and the third way that fear can can deal with us, can get into our lives. I mean, I mean, fear can distract us. Fear can can uh, force us to live based on other perceptions. But the third thing is that fear can move us to hide from the task and role that we've been given. And and. Now, while the prophet tells Nehemiah to go hide in the temple, you know, gives him kind of this sanctimonious, holy explanation of why he should do that. But, but fear can, can make us, uh, drive us to hide what we are doing. To make secret what should never be secret. What should never be unveiled. You know, there is safety in secrecy but there's no security. There might be safety in hiding who you are. There might be safety in hiding what Christ has called you to do. And we could we could hide away and say, you know, nothing bad is going to happen if I just stay in this little bubble, nothing will ever happen. There there might be there might be safety, but there's no security. See, when we, when we are so afraid that we hide who we are, what we are, what we're called to do, when we're so afraid that we hide, well, you can't hide and do the work at the same time. You can't hide... And speak the gospel at the same time. You can't bury yourself so deep and dark away. You can't never take risks, risks and expect faith to grow. Shemaiah, the prophet, wanted to make the governor of Judea a fugitive in his own city. He wanted the one man who needed to be out front and in everybody's face because that's his job as governor to hide away and be safe. C.S. Lewis in, in uh, the, the Chronicles of Narnia um, C.S. Lewis has a, a, a talking beaver. If you've never read the Chronicles of Narnia, you should. Um, but he has a talking beaver who has known Aslan, who is a lion, who is the king of Narnia, uh, the son of the king. It's a, it's a Jesus figure. Somebody asks him about Aslan. He says, well, he's a lion. Yes. And the, the beaver, he says, so, so is he safe? And the beaver says, oh, he's not safe. But he is good. See, God is not safe. Being a Christian is not a safe way to live your life. It's a risky proposition to step out of your door every day knowing that you serve a God that your world does not like. It is not safe. To speak the gospel in places where you have been told not to. It's not safe to set aside fear and live and take chances to honor the one who died for you. It's not safe. If you want safe, hide away. Never do anything. Never change. Never take a risk. But if you want security, find out what God has called you to do and do it in the face of fear. I was a little kid. I was terrified of heights. Some of that is because I'm built so low to the ground to start with. I'm the same height I was in sixth grade, same weight I was in eighth grade, Um I was terrified of heights. I, I hate the idea of dangling out in space. That's kind of my thing. Like, I, I the idea of um, like parachuting never going to happen. Not an option. All right. So when I was um, about 15 or 16, I won a, a contest uh, program I was in, and the reward for the contest was to go rappelling. Have you ever been rappelling? The very first step of repelling is somebody says to you, don't worry, you're safe. Put your hand behind your back and then tells you, lean out over this building. And you do. You literally, you put your feet on the, on the corner of, of the edge of a building and you lean yourself out until you are parallel to the ground. And then you start to lower yourself down to building. Children with fear of height should not do this. The first kid that went down, the kid that went down right before me, uh, he had a biological issue in the process. (laughs) It was my turn. I got to the edge of that building, and I started to hyperventilate. I was, I was breathing. I was, if you've ever had to face something like this, you know, I I was, and the instructor, they they were army rangers who were doing the instruction. Um, He said to me, son, you, are you all right? Apparently I get really pale when I'm afraid Um, and I didn't have the beard to hide it. So um, I was working on it, but I wasn't there yet. And, and I, I took a breath and I said, no, I said, I'm, I'm going to do this. I'm going to do this. He said, well, I mean, I don't know how to tell you this, but the last kid that said that, you know, was a mess. Um, I said, no, I'm going to do it. Lowered myself out. I'm breathing. I still remember to this day the absolute total terror of the idea of of leaning out. You're not supposed to lean over the edge of buildings. That's not a good idea. Leaning out over the edge of the building, and, and the, the guy that was on belay, they were, the building was about four or five stories high. I'm not sure. It was one of the barracks buildings down at Hanscom Air Force Base. Or not Hanscom, uh, Otis, Otis, down in Cape Cod. I don't think Otis is open anymore. Um, so, so I started to lean out, and the guy that's on belay, that's the guy that's down on the bottom, that if you freak out, he pulls the rope away from the building, makes you stop, in theory. Um, he, says, he says, you're doing great, you're doing great, you're doing great. And I'm up there going, I'm going to die, I'm going to die, I'm going to die, I'm going to die. Well, needless to say, once you're over the edge of the building, there's nothing you can do. You, you have only one direction to go, and gravity is going to determine it. And so you have to you move your brake hand and just start moving down the building. I started to move down the building. I started to take little baby steps down the building. Guy on the t- the front, uh, The guy on the top, he says, push away from the building. I said, what? He says, I want you to take your hand off the brake. So I'm going to take your brake hand off, and I want you to push away from the building, like with your legs. You, do you know what happens when you do that? You, you start moving. Push away from the building. Woo! Ah! <laughs> I squealed like Joel did when that spider hit him in the face. But I was 13. Um, all the way down the building, I finished the thing. I got to the bottom of it. I... I still remember to this day. Have you ever you ever done something that like seemed to empty your lungs of air? Like you get to the bottom and you're like Ugh! like like you just can't breathe. I got to the bottom of it and it, I kid you not the guy says to me, "Do you want to go again?" Okay. And to this day, I, I mean, I will never claim to be a hero or repelling. I haven't done it in 20 years. But during college, I used to do it. I used to, We used to go to quarries, and we would go repelling. And every single time, I was terrified. Um, every single time uh, that we did it, uh, I have a thing. You guys know this about, about me. I've got these weird phobias. I've got fear of hospitals. I've got fears of I don't like being in crowded rooms where my back is not to the wall. I have all these weird things that I have to work my way through as a human being. And you have things that you have to work your way through. You have things that you have to get by. There are fears that cripple you, there are things that bury you. There are things that you want to hide from. There are things that you, you welcome a, a distraction because it terrifies you. But if you are aware God called you to be, you're safe, or you're secure. It's not safe. It's secure. So Nehemiah finishes the job not because he feels that nothing bad is ever going to happen to him when he does this. At one point, he has his construction workers working one-handed because they have their sword or their spear in their other hand. It is not a safe world, but we are secure in Christ. The question is never, and I'll leave you with this is there a reason to be afraid? That should never be your question. Do you know why? There is always a reason to be afraid. There is always something to be afraid of. The question will always be will you allow fear? to compromise what you know God has called you to do? That's the question. We will be afraid all the time. It's what we do with the fear that matters. Would you pray with me? Father, you know all the fears... They lurk and creep and pop up in our lives. The things that hold us back maybe from being all that we um, are called and equipped to be. And sometimes we we use those fears. We, we don't acknowledge them. Instead, they become excuses for us to hide away. We come up with reasoning and logic and, and plans that hold us where we think we're safe. Father, we repent of the sin of fear that is not grounded in your presence. Acknowledging that whatever it is you've called us to do or to be, it is the place we should be, it is the thing that we should do. Help us to know your will, to walk in it. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Go in peace, my brothers and sisters.